The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning and welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm your guest host, Rachel Wold, in for Kate Ebner, and today is the second episode of our month-long series speaking with National Geographic Explorers. I first saw today's guest speak at the National Geographic Explorer Symposium last year. I was impressed and inspired by his work, and I'm so pleased to be able to host him on the show today. Jason DeLeon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for being with us. I'd like to give our listeners a little bit more background on Jason before we dive deeper into his work. Jason is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Michigan, where he also directs the Undocumented Migration Project. The project is a long-term anthropological study of undocumented migration between Mexico and the U.S. It uses ethnography, which is the study of customs and culture, archaeology, and forensic science to better understand what is a very clandestine social process. He's also a 2013 National Geographic Emerging Explorer. Jason and the Undocumented Migration Project have been featured in many news outlets, including the New York Times Magazine, NBC Latino, and on NPR's Tell Me More program. Jason received his PhD in anthropology from Penn State University, and in addition to anthropology, Jason has a wide variety of interests and talents. He's also the singer song- he's a singer-songwriter who's released several albums with a couple different bands, as well as a solo artist who's toured extensively in the U.S. and Mexico. Jason also briefly hosted a Discovery Channel channel television show called American Treasures, and we'll get to talk a little bit more about his unique career path later in the show. But for now, let's get back to our main focus of the conversation, which is how Jason uses archaeological and anthropological methods to tell the stories of undocumented migration to the U.S., So, Jason, so the main ways you collect the stories of undocumented migration are through interviews and fieldwork, studying and collecting found objects. Is that right? That's true. The project is an attempt to understand this very clandestine social process by using a whole bunch of different kind of um, uh, methodological tools. And so part of the work is spending time with people in Mexico as they prepare to, to walk into the Arizona desert um, or after they've been deported back to Mexico and talking to them about their experiences. Uh, we've given migrants disposable cameras and asked them to photograph their journeys for anonymous publication. Uh, but then along the way, while people are crossing through the desert, they leave quite a bit of stuff behind, everything from food wrappers and clothes to personal effects, um, uh, photographs, letters, um, identification. And so the, the archaeology then is a way to, to, to collect 
the material remains of this process uh, w- without actually having to put myself in that sort of ethical situation of, of trying to follow people around through the desert while they're, you know, um, essentially com- committing a, a crime. Mm-hmm. And so how did the project begin? You know, what gave you the idea to go into the border area, collect and catalog the items? Where did, where did your inspiration come from? You know, I grew up partly on the border in South Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, immigration is something that has kind of always been on my radar. Um, but, you know, I started my career as a very traditional archaeologist. I worked in, in Latin America for from almost, a, almost a decade before this project. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, doing archaeology. Archaeological research in places like Lowland Veracruz and in um, the state of Tlaxcala, Mexico. And along the way, you know, what people I think don't really understand is that all of these archaeological projects that happen in Latin America, the, the workforce is 99%, um, you know, sort of local people, um, many of whom are, um, you know, coming from, from rural communities, impoverished communities. And many of these communities where there's lots of big archaeological sites also have high out-migration rates. And so I ended up getting to know a lot of people doing archaeological work who were hired, hired laborers who had these incredible migration stories. And so when I finished my dissertation, which was on basically stone tools, mm-hmm. I had decided that I wanted to do something more contemporary, something focused on immigration. And many of the men and women that I had met along the way had sort of inspired that. But I never really, I hadn't anticipated using archaeology in the way that I've come to. Um, it, I was sort of, sort of a roundabout path. I mean, I, I was interested in looking at contemporary migration. I didn't quite know how to do it, um, how to get at the actual process, because it is this very rapid, clandestine um, thing that's hard to, um, to, to directly observe. And talking to a friend of mine who had done a lot of work in southern Arizona, an archaeologist, she basically said one night over dinner, you know, migrants leave all kinds of stuff in the desert, and we would come across stuff doing archaeological survey. And she just jokingly said to me, you know, I bet if someone was really weird, they could probably do some kind of archaeological analysis <laughs> of, of that stuff. Um, and so I said, well, you know, I'm pretty weird. And so I bought a plane ticket, and about a month later, I was standing in the desert looking at the stuff, realizing that here was a way to use archaeology to understand this highly politicized and poorly understood process. Wow, that's a that's actually a great story. Um, yeah, that's something that I'm really interested in, which I think when I heard you speak at the symposium last year, you described your work as being kind of archaeology of the now. You know, we often think of archaeology as studying objects from hundreds or thousands of years ago, um, but you are using it, and I what I would venture to say is a really creative way in looking at things that were maybe left behind as soon as. I don't know, a day ago, what would you say is, you know, what's the difference for you in studying things like very recent found objects than things from ancient civilizations? You know, what can we learn from looking at the archaeology of the now? And also, is anybody else doing this kind of archaeological work? You know, it's, it, so th- this work has built on, there's been a small, I think, proportion of archaeologists who for at least the last 20 years, 30 years, have been interested in contemporary discard patterns. And so there was actually a project mm-hmm. in, the, in the 1980s called the Tucson Garbage Project, where basically this guy, Bill Rathje, went around Tucson and looked at what people were, were throwing away um, and putting into landfills versus what they were telling him that they were consuming and throwing away. And it was a really kind of innovative way to, to basically say, look, we don't always understand what we're doing, or we may be misleading or actually lying about what we're doing. And a lot of times, the material record is a different form of evidence, or um, sometimes it, it tells different stories, or maybe it's telling a more accurate story. Um, and so he was kind of this person who had started that. And there have been various 
um, um, other people who have attempted to do this in different sort of scenarios. You know, some of them have looked at things like shopping. Others have looked at the, the remnants of modern warfare. Um, but this was, um, you know, I, I think for me, the fact that I'm doing it in such a highly contentious context, I think is what right. made it um, sort of interesting for, for people and for myself too, because I think that, um, you know, everybody in the U.S. seems to have a very strong opinion, or most people, a strong opinion about what immigration is, what border security looks like, but few people have a very good understanding of it. And I think part of it is because it happens very far away, it happens, you know, out of sight, and um, so there's room for basically making up a lot of stories. And I think the archaeology is a way to kind of ground truth a lot of what we, we read in the media, a lot of what, you know, we hear the talking heads saying about what immigration looks like. Interesting. So we can learn a lot from the material record, and it's sort of a way of objectively showing what's happening, grounding it in truth, as you just said. Uh, great. So let's get back to your conversations with the people making the trips from Mexico to the U.S. Um, when you when you do the interviews with the people, first of all, how do you find people who are willing to talk to you? You know, I spend a lot of time in um, in migrant shelters in northern Mexico. Um, mm-hmm. So part of part of my work is being based in there's actually one particular shelter in Nogales where I, I spend um, a, a great deal of my time, and so I'm, I'm there all the time. I'm meeting people as they're coming from the desert. Um, I hang out on the streets of Nogales with migrants as they're getting ready to, to undertake another crossing or you know post deportation. And so part of to, to get access to to people from that sort of angle is just you know being sensitive to to, to their experiences. Um, being really transparent about who I am and what I'm doing and just sort of embedding myself with um, in these different sort of um, um, locations where people know, okay, that's the guy who wants to talk about, about immigration. That's the guy who, who wants to record our stories. And for many people, I'm the first person who's ever said, you know what, your story is important and I'd love to hear it. I want to know about what, what has happened to you, why you're migrating. Uh, and so people, you know, I've, in, in the many years that I've been doing this, I've only had one or two people who have, you know, been sort of negative towards me or, you know, hostile and, and out of you know, hundreds that I've, that I've interviewed. Wow. That's incredible. Uh, so you go to migrant shelters, you embed yourself in the local community and you found that people are actually really willing to talk to you. Um, so what do you talk to them about? You know, what kinds of questions do you ask them before they go into the desert? You know, in the beginning, this project started out of an interest in the sort of economics of human smuggling. So I wanted to know what people were carrying with them, because there's lots of vendors who specialize in stuff that migrants carry into the desert, sort of this kind of folk technology. And so in the beginning, it was a lot of questions about what are you carrying? What, what types of things have you heard are important to bring into the desert? And I realized that that's just one kind of subsection, one sub subset of, of what's actually going on. And now my interests have really turned to, um, you know, what are the different forms of sort of violence that people are experiencing? You know, where are they going? How do they end up in, um, in this particular situation? Um, you know, what are, the, what are the things that are drawing them to the U.S. or what are the things that are pushing them out of Mexico? Um, and then also, you know, trying to understand really how this is a, you know, I would characterize undocumented migration as a really violent, um, suffering-laden sort of process, but it really is, in fact, quite systematic and routinized. I mean, I think that when you talk to people 
um, about these experiences, you, you tend to see lots of patterns re- repeating themselves. And so one, one thing that I've become increasingly interested in is the ways in which this process that when it's portrayed, in, the, in, in I think, in the media, tends to be really chaotic, tends to seem sort of random. And in fact, when you talk to people and you look at what's happening on the ground, you know, there's, there is an order to this, to this process. And it's one that's directly connected to, to U.S. economic policy. It's directly connected to, um, to federal immigration policy. It's connected to NAFTA. It's connected to, you know, so there's a lot of different factors that are leading to this kind of complex social process. And so you know, my work now is just really trying to disentangle all of those different kind of elements and understand how they're, they're, they're playing out in the, during the physical act of movement, moving across the desert. Interesting. So what you've learned is that contrary to how the media might portray the process as chaotic, there's actually quite an order and a established patterns that come out of it. Um, you know, Jason, we only have one more minute till our first break, but let's start talking about um, the push and the pull factors. You know, what are the main reasons these people decide to make the trip? What's pushing them out of Mexico and pulling them towards the U.S.? Well, you know, I think the first thing that's, that's pushing them out, at least this current wave of, of migration was the North American Free Trade Agreement. Basically, this was this, supposed to be this bilateral agreement that was going to help the Mexican economy grow as the U.S. economy grow, uh, was, was growing. And in fact, that has not happened. You know, in the 90s, we basically crashed the Mexican economy, um, made, made it cheaper for people to buy corn from the U.S. and to grow it themselves. And so that sort of set out this chain reaction of this mass migration of people having to leave the U.S. in order to make um, a, a living wage. Um, and so I think that was kind of the first sort of step. We've got the Central American Free Trade Agreement that, that comes afterwards, does the same thing to, to, to Central America. So that is, a, I think, the sort of initial pushing of people out. And then what you see happening is post-9-11, you've got an increase in border security. Now it makes it difficult for people who are in the U.S. illegally who have been migrating back and forth for potentially several generations, it now becomes very difficult for them to go back to Mexico to visit family, um, you know, to, to, to return to their home communities. And mm-hmm. so okay, thank you. Now. You know, we're going to finish uh, the next segment. So I'm hearing that NAFTA is a big part of the Central American Free Trade Agreement and then 9-11. Um, we're actually going to take our first break right now. Um, don't go away. We'll be right back with more Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life featuring my guest, Jason DeLeon. Thanks. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. 
Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Hi, and welcome back to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. This is Rachel Old, and I'm guest hosting today's show for Kate Ebner. My guest is Jason DeLeon, National Geographic Emerging Explorer and Director of the Undocumented Migration Project. I'm speaking with him today about the unique ways he studies and tells the stories of undocumented migration to the U.S., which is something that here in the U.S. we hear a lot about in the news, but can be hard to get a sense of the personal stories of the lives involved. Um, And before the break, Jason and I were talking about why these people, who are mostly Mexicans, I believe, um, choose to leave their lives behind in Mexico or other countries in Central America and go to the U.S. illegally. Um, So, Jason, you were mentioning... NAFTA was one of the main reasons and its effects on the Mexican economy that makes people seek out better opportunities in the U.S. What are the other things that make the U.S. an attractive place um, to migrate into? Well, you know, I think that the, the elephant in the room is the fact that the U.S. economy would fundamentally cra- would crash without undocumented labor. And so, I mean, we, we employ people in all sectors who are undocumented, and I think that that's the other pull. I mean, that's that, that's the biggest sort of um, pull factor for um, Latin American migration is the fact that there are plenty of jobs here that Americans don't want to do that we um, are are more than willing to, to outsource to undocumented people, and so it becomes this um, this. Uh, contradiction where we spend billions of dollars on border security, but we don't police the workforce. And so we basically tell people, if you can get across the border, if you can get through Arizona, there are jobs for you in, um, you know, in Ohio, in New York. You just have to basically run the gauntlet. And, um, and no, you know, those that get through, um, you know, have to live in the shadows, but, but for the most part, you know, it's, it's relatively easy to find, to find work in the U.S. So that's the other thing is that we, that, that we are pulling them from these countries because there's a lot of work in this, um, in, um, here in the U.S. that we just don't want to do ourselves. Mm-hmm. And just so our listeners can get a sense of the scale of this issue, do you, um, can you tell us how, about how many undocumented workers there are either from Mexico or Central America in the U.S. currently? Uh, the estimates are about 12 to 13 million currently undocumented people in the U.S. And um, I think it's you know, but a lot of, you know, it's about half of them are um, are from Mexico or Latin America. I mean, we have a lot of undocumented Asian people. We've got a lot of undocumented Europeans. I mean, they just basically come, instead of coming to the desert, they're, you know, visa overstayers. Uh, but right. it's, it's about 12 to 13 million people in, in, in this country. 
Okay, so about 12 to 13 million undocumented people in the country, and about half of those are from Mexico and Latin America. Thank you. Um, so before, in the last segment, you mentioned that you actually talked to a lot of people in Mexico who ha- have lived in the U.S. and then got deported back to Mexico and are actually planning to go back. So what have you learned from them about their experiences being deported? You know, I, one of the biggest kind of issues that that has come up, you know, is... Obama has deported more people in the history of any of, of, of any president, um, and so as immigration has slowed over the last five years, we're seeing less first-time migrants coming from Latin America into the U.S., and we're seeing an increase in people who have been who have been arrested and deported for you know typically nonviolent crimes, driving without a license, having a taillight out, um, you know, people who are deported just for being on basically for being undocumented. They've been here for many of them have been here for a very long time, and so they get sent back to Mexico, um, to a country that has now become unfamiliar to them. So, you know, over the, the last probably four or five years talking to people, one of the things that's really struck me is that this new, this new wave of undocumented migrants who are coming through the Arizona desert are people who have long histories in the U.S., I mean, I interview people who, went to, who graduated from high school in the U.S. who've been deported, people who barely speak Spanish, people who haven't been to Mexico since they were babies. And so that's kind of this new, the effect of this kind of increase in deportations over the last several years is now you have a new type of migrant coming through. Wow, so I'm learning that the migrants aren't always people going to the U.S. for the first time, which is, I think, one of the more dominant narratives that you see in movies or television shows. It's actually people who may consider the trip sort of a homecoming. You mentioned that they maybe went to high school in the U.S. or they haven't been to Mexico since baby. So that's something really interesting to learn. Um, So, Jason, you go, you talk to people in Mexico, you learn how they're preparing for the trip, you learn about their lives, their work situations, what's making them want to go to the U.S. Um, And then the other part of your research, apart from the ethnographic interviews, um, is fieldwork. So you go into the desert, uh, I'm assuming with research partners or grad students, and hopefully you know, not by yourself, and you look for objects that people have left behind while on their way to the U.S. Um, you talked about this a little bit in the first segment, but what kinds of things do you find out there? You, know, you find everything from Gatorade bottles and, and bags of Doritos to um, family photos, love letters, Bibles, um, it's everything that you would imagine you would need to get across the desert to both survive, you know, physically and uh, emotionally. And so it's, um, you know, it, it's the full range of stuff. And one of the, the interesting things about the material record is that when you start to look at what people are carrying with them, you get a, you get a, a, a sense of a, a couple of different things. There's the sort of personal element of it, you know, the, the photo of a child, the photo mm-hmm. of a loved one, um, a, a, a Bible that's used for, um, you know, to, to help someone get through these sort of difficult things, these difficult um, crossing experiences. But at the same time, you see that, that, that this border crossing process involves, you know, multinational corporations. So Gatorade, Red Bull, um, Monster Energy Drink, um, all of you know, all of these companies are um, profiting off of this off of this migration process as well. And so, the, so the, the stuff that people leave behind can, can tell you about these kind of different these different ways in, in which the individual stories and globalization sort of in, um, uh, in, intersect in the desert. Interesting. So there's a personal aspect, and then there's a, a larger economic aspect. Um, multinational companies are often involved um, with the objects that you find. So what do you do with the objects once you find them? Uh, walk us through your process. So we basically we spend a lot of time in the desert looking for 
places where migrants have come through and left stuff behind. And then we treat these areas that migrants um, are either hiding, resting, changing their clothes, um, leaving stuff behind if they're getting picked up in a vehicle and they're, and they're forced to, to, to drop all of their personal possessions. We treat those like we would any, any archaeological site. So we come in, we map them, we photograph them, we, um, we record GPS coordinates, we... We photograph stuff, and then we collect you know, quite a bit of the material. And so we have right now over 20,000 objects that we've collected over the years that currently live in, in an archive at, at University of Michigan. Uh, but we've looked, I mean, probably over at 100,000 objects um, since, since 2009. But, but we, we, we treat the stuff like we would any archaeological context. And I think that's, for some people, that's a hard thing to, to wrap their head around. It's like, well, how is that archaeology? You're looking at modern stuff. You're looking at stuff that people are throwing away. But people need to realize that, like, archaeology, our bread and butter, is looking at what humans have left behind. And if we look at, like, I think a good example of how this stuff transitions is, if you look at late 19th century descriptions of what um, Five Points was like in New York, or what, um, how people were describing Irish immigrants, it was a very nasty sort of discourse. They're mm-hmm. these filthy immigrants. They come here, they're stealing our jobs, they're trashing this environment, they're leaving all this stuff behind. You know, they live in, they live in, these, in these ghettos. And it took, it took a... 50 to 60 years for someone to go back and say, you know what, archaeology can tell us a lot about the Irish experience in the late 19th century. And basically, we're just trying to do that now with, um, with, with the Latino migra- migration experience. It's harder to do it now because it's happening, you know, as we speak. And so it's a lot more controversial. But, you know, if I was doing this 50 years into the future, I think that people would have a different, um, a, a less visceral reaction to some of the work that we've done. Right. So it sounds like if you look at history, you see that uh, migrants to the U.S. have been treated with some of the same sort of negative narratives as Latino migrants are today. Um, Thanks for giving us a window into your process. It sounds like a really detailed, meticulous process. You have over 20,000 objects in an archive in Michigan. Um, So how do you put it all together? You know, how do you draw conclusions looking at the interviews and then the found materials together? You know, one of the things that that I've come to really believe is that no one data set is going to tell you the full story. And so mm. the objects tell some, tell some stories, the narratives tell other stories. Sometimes they work really well together. Sometimes they, they basically are talking right past each other. And so what, what I really tried to do is say anthropology as a discipline, we... Um, you know, we're made up of four, of four components, linguistic anthropology, biological or physical anthropology, archaeology, and then sociocultural, so contemporary studies of people. I think all of those different tool sets that those different subdisciplines can offer us, if we, if we bring those together, we can develop a much more holistic picture about, you know, th- this migration process. So, you know, I want to know the individual narratives. I want to know about this one person's life, but I also want to know about the economics of it or the, 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 the language that migrants use when they cross the desert or the language that Border Patrol uses. I want to know about what are the physiological effects that this, pro- this process has on, on the body or what happens to people who die in the desert. Um, so, you know, for me, it's, it's pulling in all these data sets to, to tell a more, a more complete story, um, which it, when, when you do that, becomes harder than to perpetuate this kind of black and white um, you know, simplistic narrative. It just it makes things very complicated, but I think in, for, for me in a very good way and, a, and hopefully a more enlightening way for the public. Right, sort of like the more you know, the more questions you have or the, the less black and white things seem. 
I think you can find that almost anywhere you do research and learn about a topic. Um, thank you. So we only have about one and a half minutes before the break, um, but I want to ask if any of your research has unearthed any really major surprises for you, you know, things that you totally weren't expecting that you found out from doing this research. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things that has really shocked me is how quick, I mean, so part of the work that we do is, is um, based on forensic science. And one of the most shocking things to me is just how quickly uh, a body can disappear in the desert if, you've, if, if it's been exposed to the elements. And I think that the implications of, that, of those findings um, really start to call into question the, the body count that we currently have for the number of people who've died in the Arizona desert. And so, so the forensic stuff has really been eye-opening to kind of show what it looks like on the ground. Um, you know, we've used... Um, Pigs are the common proxy for the human body in forensic experiments, and so we've used we've used these animals in different environmental contexts to measure how quickly they get eaten by 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 carrion eaters, how quickly they decompose, and those results have been quite shocking. They've been incredibly rapid. Wow! Um, so I'm learning that bodies can disappear very quickly, and that this is really a life or death situation. You're going out there and studying things with really really high stakes, and it can be quite a grave situation. Um, thank you, Jason. You know, with that, it's time for another break. Uh, this is Rachel Wold. I'm in for Kate Ebner. And my guest today is Jason DeLeon, who's a National Geographic Emerging Explorer and Director of the Undocumented Migration Project. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the implications of what he's learning and also a little bit about Jason's career path and what it means to him to be an explorer with National Geographic. We'll be right back. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening. 
listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Hi, and thank you for joining us on Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. If you like the show and want to find out more about our guests, read episode recaps, and get special access to additional resources, go ahead and sign up for our Visionary Leader newsletter at nebocompany.com. I'm Rachel Wold, and today National Geographic Emerging Explorer Jason DeLeon and I are discussing his anthropological work documenting the stories of Mexicans who risk their lives to cross the border into the U.S. And Jason, I want to talk a little bit more about the broader implications of your work um, for really for an American audience. How do the narratives of, of the lives of these migrants that you've discovered differ from what's out there in the dominant media, you know, being told by news networks, American politicians, um, places like that? You know, I, I think um, one of the things that, that, that I've really come to understand in more detail is just how far-reaching these stories actually go. So, um, you know, an example being um, I'm currently working on a book, and one of, the, one of the people in the book that I write about is a 15-year-old kid from Ecuador named uh, Jose Maria Takuri. And Jose went missing in the Arizona desert in June of 2013. So he's been missing now for almost, um, for almost a year. And w- one of the things that I've been writing about is why he was coming to the U.S. Basically, he was coming to, to reunite with his parents who, who have been here working and sending money back home for several years. Um, and his disappearance, you know, basically has had dramatic impacts on his family in, um, um, on the East Coast and his family in Ecuador. And it's, and it's the fact that, you know, we don't know what, what has happened to him. Um, everyone is sort of in this, in this moment of um, what clinical psychologist Pauline Boss calls ambiguous loss, this, this loss that has no resolution. Um, you know, writing about these stories that, you know, he is he is one of hundreds of people who have gone missing over the last several years. But you know his story isn't just in the desert; it's in New York, it's in it's in Cuenca, Ecuador, it's in the Arizona desert. So um, I, I think that one of the things that we've tried to do is to show the complexity of the narrative and how you really can't capture that in in a soundbite or you know in in one article. I mean, it's all it's 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 so. There's so much there, and I think once you start kind of looking at it um, in the sort of grand scheme of things, it, it becomes then much easier to, to empathize and to understand the, the sort of human aspects of the story that, that go beyond the, the statistics that we, that we read about in the news. Yeah, so it sounds like, you know, once you dig deeper, you really get the human story behind it. Um, and what I'm hearing is that it touches um, all aspects, you know, all places in the U.S. You mentioned New York, Ohio. Um, it's not just an issue that is felt locally, either in, you know, Arizona, Texas, New Mexico, California. Um, this really has to do with all Americans because we all participate in the American economy. For the most part, we all participate in the labor economy. Um, you know, so if you work and live in the U.S., this has to do with you. Um, this this really leads into a question that I wanted to ask, you know, on this show, which is, of course, called Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. Um, we like to ask each of our guests to share their vision with us, you know, the future that they're hoping for and working towards. Um, and, you know, this 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 migration journey, you know, sometimes can seem like it's a very, we know that it's a very 
grave process. People die, people disappear. Um, but what would what would be the best case scenario in the future? You know, what would you, Jason, like to see happen to the migration journey between Mexico and the USA twenty five to fifty years in the future? What do you hope could be different? What would you like to see? You know, I just hope that we can finally get to a moment where. Um, we don't have any historical amnesia, you know, we're about, you know, in, in, in 50 years from now, we're not mistreating Cambodians or Vietnamese or Indians or whatever next great migration is coming to the U.S. to work, is that we recognize that, you know, we've, every generation of, my, of migrants we have mistreated in, in, in different ways. And I, I just, I really hope that we can eventually get to a moment where we recognize the importance of migrant labor and we can come up with a more humane uh, um, realistic approach to, um, you know, to the, to this, to this process. And it's, um, you know, I, I think just being fair to people, um, and also recognizing how important they are to our economy will hopefully help us to, to, to come up with, with a more, with a more, a more sensitive system to, um, you know, to, to deal with this very important issue. And it just feels like we're re- repeating ourselves right now, every generation. And so I really just hope that in the future, we'll, we'll, we'll be more sensitive and smart about it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that vision with us. It's very powerful. Uh, You know, Jason, I know that your grandparents were born in Mexico and that your mother immigrated to the U.S. from the Philippines. How does your family background, um, you know, what does does that mean for you personally to do this work? Um, You mentioned that you grew up in South Texas. Immigration was always a part of life. You know, do you do you bring your personal story to the out into the field with you? You know, I I think um, it at least makes me more sensitive to to this issue and it's it's mm-hmm. it, it was at least familiar to me before I started doing this sort of work um, you know not that I not that I can understand um, in any in any way what what it would take you know to what it's like to be a, a disenfranchised peasant farmer from Chiapas who risks your life so that you can put food on the table I mean th- I, I'll never understand that but I think at least um, you know coming having parents who are who are immigrants and coming from this sort of bizarre cultural background, you know, I, I think that in many ways my, my story is, um, you know, an American immigration story. And it's, so I, I think that, that that opens me up at least to being, to being more sensitive and uh, to, to trying to understand some of these issues. But, you know, it's something that um, when, I, when I talk to people uh, in Mexico, you know, it's, it's really easy to see my relatives in them, in the stories that, 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 I've, that I've grown up with or the relatives that I have in Mexico that, that, have undocu- that have migrated and been undocumented, or my Filipino relatives who are undocumented. Um, I, I think that that at least makes me, um, um, opens me up to, to, to um, I think I have a slightly more nuanced understanding of this process, only because I've got people who are close to me who have gone through the same thing. Thank you. So it really is personal for you. And, and I would say that I think, you know, most Americans, um, this story would resonate, this work would resonate with them, you know, um, my grandma immigrated here from Korea. I would say most people that I know have a relative one, two, three generations back um, who was an immigrant. So the immigration story really is one of the biggest American stories that there is. So thanks for sharing that with us. Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about your um, interesting background. You know, you were in a couple bands. You hosted a show on the Discovery Network. Um, you know, now you're a professor in anthropology. Do you see a common thread that has, you know, connected you through all these different experiences? 
Uh, I'm a ham. No, <laughs> um, you know that's uh, uh, that might be a little bit in there. Uh, you know, I, I think part of it, though, at least with the with the the, the popular media stuff, is that um, you know I've been very interested in making anthropology more relevant to the to the public. And um, you know, I, I think one of the things I might be be, be okay at doing is, is translating some of this stuff to a general audience to kind of help people understand, you know, why anthropology is important, why archaeology is important. And with the Discovery Channel show, you know, that was that was the goal was to was to present something smart on TV that was being um, coming out of the words of people who were relatively um, um, have 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 some have some modicum of of um, you know uh, experience with with these topics. And so I, I think my, one of my goals with and with the work I do now, you know, is is trying to translate it to the general public um, in a way that that makes it you know understandable. Uh, and, I, and I think that with with all the different things that I've that I've wanted to do or um, in in my career, part of it is is constantly reinforcing the fact that I think anthropology is the most important social science that we have. And we're just not always very good at convincing people of that, the, the public. But um, I think it, it, it behooves us to, um, to, to constantly be reminding people, showing them why this stuff is so important. And, you know, I, when I look at the Discovery Channel show and what we did with that, that's basically all I did there was, was teach the lectures that I teach in Anthropology 101. Is take these sort of um, seemingly complex ideas that that academics can can complicate for very, for various reasons, and say you know what they're actually pretty simple ideas, and if you connect them to your everyday lives, it becomes then really easy to understand why anthropology is so important and and why these these things that we do as cultural creatures are 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 so fascinating. You know, I really. Um, I wholeheartedly support that mission. I might be a little bit biased because I studied anthropology in college, but, you know, I do think anthropology is, is a fascinating and deeply important social science. Um, and so, you know, I commend you um, and, you know, wish you luck on your journey bringing that to a wider audience. You know, one of the ways um, that it seems like your work is getting disseminated to a wider audience is through the museum exhibit that um, exists called the State of Exception, which features some of the objects um, from your research. And I know that several major U.S. museums have also expressed interest in permanently housing some of the found materials from your collection. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the exhibit? You know, what's the purpose of showing these things in a museum? You know, the, I think one of the big goals was just to to take the stuff out of the desert, where in the desert the dominant discourse that people use to talk about this stuff is to say migrant trash and to be really dismissive about its historical importance. And so for me to put it into these different museum contexts forces the public to engage with it directly and then, and then make a decision. Like, is it trash? Or when I look and I see a, a tattered Bible and a, and a wrinkled photo of, of, a, of a little kid, can I still, can I still call that trash and feel, and feel okay about that? Or by engaging with it um, um, directly, does it force me to think about it in a different way? And so, so part, the exhibit stuff has been has been has been partly to to take what's happening in the desert that is almost invisible and to and to put it into you know into these different contexts where it becomes then quite quite active and alive. Um, and then the other part of it too is is to try to convince people to say, look, in 50 years we are going to call this stuff historical um, um, historical artifacts 
Mm-hmm. Right now, we, we basically dismiss them as trash and we throw them away. And so what I've tried to do is say we need to preserve this historical record because it's disappearing. It's been cleaned up by conservation groups. Um, many of the people who are going through this process don't have the opportunity to, to talk about this stuff because they're, uh, they're afraid of being deported. And so the museum context has been a way to put it into a new sort of safe space. And in some ways, I hope to, to conserve some of this stuff and protect it for posterity. Thank you. You know, I've seen um, I've seen the image. One of the most powerful images from the exhibit is of all of the rows of backpacks. You know, I don't know how many dozens of backpacks there are lined up, but I, I know that anybody who sees that um, will be struck by the story and definitely want to learn more. Um, you know, I'm I'm so curious. What do you think some of the people you've met, either in Mexico or on this side of the border, who've made the journey, would say about seeing maybe some of their former belongings in a museum? What would they think about that? You know, um, that's a great question. We recently, when we had the opening in Detroit recently, we brought out um, um, a young man by the name of uh, uh, Luis Leon Lopez, who was um, one of the Dream 9 activists who was involved in this big protest last summer, but was an undocumented student in the U.S. who was recently given um, a, 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 a temporary stay of deportation after this protest. But he had gone through the desert several times trying to get back to his family after going to Mexico to try to enroll in college and failing there as well because of not having the paperwork. But he, you know, for him, I think, um, you know, he said it was a very powerful and, and I think powerful, disturbing, um, but then also kind of a proud moment to see this material in this, in this new context and be able to share it with the public to say, this is what people went through. And, he, you know, and, he, and he, the way that he framed it to me was, you know, I almost died out there. Um, you know, I lost a backpack in the desert. And I wonder, you know, how many, how many stories are there like that? And it, it becomes hard to share that with people. You know, he's in a unique position where he's, he's able to talk about it publicly now. But I think for a lot of people who are undocumented, who can't talk about this stuff, you know, when they're, when they're able to, to re-engage with this, with this lost material, um, I, I think it's very, it's very affecting. And, Thank you. You know, you know I, I hate to cut you off, but um, I just want to reiterate, it's powerful, it's disturbing, it's proud um, for some of the people who've gone through this process. And um, we'll finish up after our break. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with me, Rachel Wold, and our guest today, National Geographic Explorer, Jason DeLeon. Thank you. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Hi, I'm Ed Krell, CEO of Destination Maternity. We proudly support the March of Dimes work to reduce the rate of premature birth. The numbers have gone down in the past five years, but still nearly half a million babies are born too soon in the United States each year. 
We're helping the March of Dimes fund cutting-edge research and community programs to help more moms have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Visit MarchofDimes.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Hello, and welcome back to the final segment of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm your guest host, Rachel Wold, and for Kate Ebner today. And I'm having a really fascinating and thought-provoking discussion with Jason DeLeon. He's the director of the Undocumented Migration Project. He's an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Michigan. And he's also a National Geographic Emerging Explorer. And you know, Jason, earlier in the show, we were saying that only you were saying that only one or two people that you've asked to talk about this stuff with um, who are migrants have had a negative reaction, and everybody else has been really supportive and wanted to share with you. And I'm wondering, when you're in the border lands, you know, what about the local authorities? Are they supportive of your research? You know, so I've, I have a relatively good, I think, working relationship with um, with the the sort of bureaucrats, the border patrol mm-hmm. bureaucrats, people who have, who have to engage with the public to answer questions, you know, they, they tend to be pretty civil. But on the ground, you know, one of the things that, that I've come to really realize is that if you live in, in, a, in a place like Aravaca, Arizona, which is only about 12 miles north of the border, you live in basically a police state where everybody is suspect, citizen, non-citizen. And so we've had some... Um, you know, like like any like any group of people, there's always there's good people, there's bad people, and there's the people in between. Um, but we've definitely had some very um, hostile encounters with, um, with with federal law enforcement for, for basically doing nothing other than just driving around. You know what what I call DWB, a driving while brown. Mm. Interesting. So it, it so it, it 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 can be a little tense down there. I mean, we've we've had our house raided before with with you know guys with machine guns and masks on for no reason other than the fact that um, you know they could. Wow, wow. So so if you know if there was one thing that most Americans you think maybe don't know about this phenomenon that you wish they knew, um, what would that be? Like, what would you share with the whole world if you had you know the headline of the New York Times or something? You know, I, I think that um, what would I want to share with people? Um, <laughs> j- just the fact that we're all implicated in this deeply, and we we can't be uncomfortable. If we're going to be if we're going to be aggressive at border security, then we have to be aggressive in, in in policing the workforce. And I think if we started to do that, then everybody would realize just how implicated they actually were in this whole process. And I think we maybe would start to think differently about. Um, what what notions of border security actually means. Um, so I, I think it's kind of shining a light on how it's all interconnected. Every single one of us who's a consumer in the U.S. is implicated in undocumented migration. Mm-hmm. So we're all implicated deeply in this. Um, and there, you know, we probably, most of us don't realize just how deeply we're, we're implicated in it. And we don't really understand 
what it means when we say, like, let's increase border security or let's build a fence. Those are two things that you hear a lot about. Uh, And you mentioned earlier that you're interested in studying the violence that people experience in this process. Um, Can you say just a little bit about that? Well, there's all types of violence that migrants experience. There's the, the, the physical violence. I mean, we basically, our border, our border security system, um, is, the, the paradigm that we use is basically nature as a deterrent. So since the mid-90s, we've created a funnel along the border. The border is not completely fenced. I think that's a misconception that many people have. There are big areas of the border that it's either a two-strand barbed wire fence or there's nothing there. And what we've done is we've left the back door open in southern Arizona in hopes that if we funnel migrants through this hostile desert environment, that in itself will become a form of deterrence to keep people out. And we know that that's not the case because 5 million people have been deported in southern Arizona since 2000. And, you know, almost 2,500 bodies have been recovered since, the, since the, uh, the 90s. And so we know it's not deterring people in that way, but it is physically, you know, hurting people in all kinds of, um, um, you know, uh, tra- traumatic ways. Wow, thank you. I think that's definitely an aspect that, you know, is not shown a lot on the news or people living in their communities in America don't think about. Um, I just want to repeat the number that Jason gave to us. Almost 2,500 bodies have been recovered um, from the desert since the 1990s. Uh, that's an astounding number, and I know that you've, you've done research on what the desert does to those bodies, uh, and it's, it's not something that most of us would wish on, you know, any other human being. So thank you for bringing this to light. I think this is really important to talk about. Um, I want to transition a little bit and talk about some of the interesting things that you're doing with the Undocumented Migration Project. We talked about the museum exhibit, State of Exception, which uh, I believe is going to be touring throughout the U.S. Is that right? Well, we're hoping it'll actually go to Mexico next. Um, so we're, we're, we're sort of in the, um, in the planning stages about where it's going to go um, for the next installation, but potentially Mexico. If not Mexico, there's been several museums in the U.S. that are interested in hosting it as well. Great. Um, so where can people go to follow your work? We've got pretty much everything is on our website, undocumentedmigrationproject.com. Um, and so you can get updates there. You can follow us on Twitter. Our, our Twitter f- stream is also um, connected to the website as well. Great. Thank you. And you mentioned that you're working on a book. When is that coming out? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> that's what, uh, Too that's soon. I'm in the, thro- the throes of right now, but, but um, the idea is that the book will come out in the, the late fall of 2015. Great, and we'll definitely look for that and share that with our audience. And I just want to repeat the URL again. That's undocumentedmigrationproject.com. Um, they're also on Twitter. Um, and I understand that Undocumented Migration Project has an initiative currently to send kids to a photography camp near the U.S.-Mexico border um, in a partnership through National Geographic. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. One of the great things about um, my association now with National Geographic is all of the kind of perks that have come from 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 um, from getting this award. And mm-hmm. um, one of the things that we're going to do this summer is National Geographic has this amazing program where they basically um, go to underserved communities and send a bunch of photographers, give kids free digital cameras, and teach them how to use them, and then have them tell their stories. And um, one of the things that I've wanted to do for a long time is 
to give people in, in this town of Aravaca, which is really close to the border, which only gets represented negatively in the media about immigration, is to give these kids um, an opportunity to tell their own stories. And so we'll go down this summer and hang out with, um, with about 30 high school and junior high school students, give them cameras, and, and see what, what their lives are like um, living within this, this migration corridor. Wow, that sounds like a really great project. So these kids are going to have a chance to take their own pictures, tell their own stories, and really have a voice um, in an issue that is not often represented accurately or positively in the media. Um, That sounds like an awesome project. Um, Well, you know, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time. But Jason, I want to thank you for joining me today and for sharing your work with our audience and for speaking so frankly about this issue. It's really been eye-opening, and I've really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, thank you, Rachel. Thanks. This has been Visionary Leader, Extraordinary Life, uh, with me, your guest host, Rachel Wold, and my guest today has been Jason DeLeon. Thank you so much for joining. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 